Hi, I'm David Norris, and it is my pleasure to be a guest on today's In Conversation With. Hello, David. I am. I live right beside us. Do you? And we have a B&B, and uh, we bring people from the sleeve bustle. People who are seeing Daniel O'Donnell maybe on a Saturday night. But how lovely. Yeah. Oh, look, I stayed in Loch Gower okay, uh, okay. with a Mrs. Stevenson. I'm sure she's dead 120 years <laughs> But she, because I'm 75, yeah. and um, she, uh, she'd been the catering manager in Trinity. And she was awfully nice, totally modern, a uh, little kind of cement house, uh, but food was very good. Very good. And we visited the Drumlins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, famous for them. Yeah. yeah Gavin, Johnny Quinn are like that. And where, where did these you from? I'm from Ballyrone. Yes. So I won't be far from you, uh, from the homestead, as, as they say. Um, yeah, there's actually a, a massive, massive funeral now in Castletown tomorrow. A young mother, uh, she had three young children under the age of five, uh, passed of cervical cancer. Oh, yeah. dear. Um, her husband would have been the leash hurling captain for years, and uh, dear, oh dear, it's oh very, very sad now, yeah. Well, you know, I go to the leash association dinners mm-hmm. and so on here. Um, my grandfather should have inherited uh, quite a big estate, but it was administered by his, his parents died when he was one. Um, and it was administered by an old uncle who swindled him rotten and all he got was four encumbered farms so he did this and that and a bit of everything and he was very jolly <laughs> and uh, I mean he did a bit of auctioneering he did farming he did this and that and the other uh, and uh, one stage he ran the post office right and my uncle was uh, at court and became terribly friendly with Queen Mary you've never heard of Queen Mary she was George V's wife okay and she was Princess Mary of Tech. They were all Germans. Mm-hmm. And uh, my aunt and herself became very close. Um, and because uh, her son, Prince of Wales, had run off with an American okay. woman, Wallace Simpson. My mother said about that that Edward was a bloody fool to give up being Admiral of the Fleet to become third mate to an American tramp. <laughs> <laughs> Strong words. <laughs> yeah. And my mum was usually very kind, but she just didn't care at all for Mrs. Right. Oh. And and the, the the estate that he he should have inherited, uh, where was that in Leash? Oh yes. Oh right. Oh yes. Whereabouts do you know? All over the place. Oh, God. There were farms here, there, and everywhere else. Yeah. Now, uh, and he had he had Green Hills, he had Monarch, mm-hmm. uh, he had the Marlborough Road. Uh, and there was a fort, I can't remember oh. where it was. Would you be familiar with the Devesi estate in Abbey Leaks? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah, I used to work in Abbey Leaks for, for a good Did few you? years. Yeah. It's now a fellow called David Davis. David Davis, right. yes. Yeah, uh, Sir, David Sir David Davis. Sir David Davis. Yes, yes, as he politely reminds us. And he's like, yes, yes. Dear. Yes. Um, <laughs> but he, he's a nice... Of modesty. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of them married an Indian princess or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you call it? Tom? Tom Devesi yes. did because uh, um, I remember the first time I I met his son. Now, and he, you know, he was in his twenties, and he'd said, "Oh, I'm um, <laughs> Count Devesi's son." And I said, "No, you're not." Would you? Say? It was. I was working in a bar at the time, and it was yeah. two o'clock in the morning. And I thought some guy was winding me up because <laughs> you know. And uh, no, as I as I turn as it turned out. He was, in fact, uh, what's his name? Oh, I can't think of his name. But he was. Is the family named Devesi or Vizi? 
easy. It's up. It's it, that's that's up for contention. You know, it depends who you ask. Yes. So uh, Tom himself would say Devesi. Yeah, but that's the title. Yes. But the family name would itself is VC. VC, yeah. Yeah. I thought, yeah. I, thought, I don't know anything very much about them at all. Yeah. No. They um they they used to open the the grounds a couple of times a year, yeah. whereas now they just do it once a year for for. I have a photograph of my mother and my aunt over there in oh, 1920. Right. Very good. Yeah. The Bluebell Woods were beautiful. They they still every year. Um, and there's a lovely little church of Ireland church in Abilix. Yeah, yeah, just right there. Um. Well, there's there's two actually. There's the one that they don't use anymore, um, which is probably the smaller of the two, and then there's a slightly bigger one on Ballacolla Road. Uh, it's it's beside the the South School. Um, yes. So it, it's lovely. It's beautiful grounds up onto it, and yes, and there's Morrissey's pub. Morrissey's, of course. Uh, they uh, they still have a snug. They're um, they're they're. Burner or their you know their their wood stove is uh, the original one since 1780 or oh something, my goodness. and they've had it restored twice. Wow! So it was out of commission there last year for about six months while it was being restored. Yes, and it's back now. I still have a, a third cousins down there. Really? Yes, Telford. They have a shop. Oh, good. Are you crazy? Yeah. Yes. Know, uh, what's his name? Um, the, the, Liam. There was William. There was John. Uh, yeah, they have. I have my phone on time. They sold out for forty nine million. They yeah, they still have two stores. They have one in Port Leash and they have one in Mount Rath. Yeah, and they have one in the thigh. And they, yeah, they they lost that one during the recession. Yeah. All right. Um, they still have the one in Mount. Yeah, but they they sold before the recession. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, They're awful nice people. Yeah, my dad, my dad would be would would know them quite well now. Um, I remember Billy Tell. Uh, he was the father, right? And he was his great hobby was motor racing. Okay. And he smashed a Lotus Super Climax into the wall at Waterford at Dungarvan right. at one hundred and ten miles an hour. <laughs> Did he survive? Not at all. Fresh. I figured as much. Where do you want to put the zoom? Um. Well, I suppose. Yeah, sure. That'd probably work. Um. Closest to David, anyways. Do you? The, you didn't bring the little small tripod, no. I don't have it. Ah, that's alright. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you're not, are you televising it? Uh, we record, like, the full episode, but we usually take short clips out. We, we, we generally take 30 second clips from it just for social media. Alright! Right, of course it is, I don't mind, but I just don't know. So, where's the, the camera? The camera's uh, over here. here. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, I should take my shot. scarf off. Oh. How's me whore? <laughs> Is me? F- oh, my flyer's open. <laughs> so glad to see you. <laughs> oh, I dare say that constitutes sexual molestation. <laughs> Everything is so frightfully politically correct. They sent me a thing around the other day, 40 pages of it, that I was to fill up about sexual harassment and bullying in my office. I said to Miriam, I have never fucking bullied you. <laughs> and I said, this is going straight in the bin. And that's exactly where it went. Um, right. You sit on the, the close, or the furthest this side, and I'll just see how... No, so you're out of shot there. Oh, really? Cut well, I'm glad I changed my shirt, because I had prawns, <laughs> and I took the head off on the prawns, and it squirted uh, tomato juice all over everything. <laughs> 
Yeah, you still, still looking more dapper than three of us. Anyway. Yeah, oh, Gav, Gav is bringing it with the trousers <laughs> today. We, we came in like drained sewer rats. Yeah, exactly. oh. <laughs> Absolutely right. I think like that's probably the worst weather we've had all year. And it's May. And we just it's May, yeah. We just finished our exams, David. And I just heard, well done. Isn't that lovely? Yeah, this is the start of our summer. Start of our summer. Is, well, uh, it'll you know, get better. Yeah. Don't worry about well, it. We're supposed to be getting a heat wave. Yeah, is that how you'd be sitting, yeah? Because like, you're, you're very barely in shots. That's what I'm asking. Now we will warn you in advance, David. The camera only records for 30 minutes at a time, so we'll hear it click, you'll hear the shutter go, and we'll have to reset it just. Oh yeah, that's fine. You just stop it whenever you yeah, want to. We just um, we just pause the... I just want a bit more cold. Yeah, okay. I usually have lovely logs, but I've run, oh, I've run out of them. Where do you get logs in Dublin? Um, at the petrol station. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's leash turf. Oh, the best kind of turf, yeah. you know. Well, I, funnily enough, David, my address is actually Bog Road. Oh, how lovely! Yeah, there you go. It's not something I publicise because, you know, city folk tend to, uh, to, to... Oh, I love the bog. See, there you go. I love the bog and the bog cotton and all this. It's wonderful. And I'll show you a picture upstairs. Uh, if we get up that far, um, <laughs> which is my favourite picture, and it's a picture of a bog, a corner of a field in a bog, and, and lowering clouds, and everything's rain soaked. I just love Brilliant. it. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Alright, are we good to go? Yep. Yeah. Who's the intro? Uh, well, you can do it. Can I give it all? Huh? Are you recording on that then as well? Yeah, perfect. Okay. Yeah, make sense. Just gonna intro it as we'd normally do. Somebody said before, of course. Who's a Joe Duffy's like, of course, you're performers. You're performers. You have to get on with your process and stuff. <laughs> so, um, hello and welcome to In Conversation with. My name is Colin McDonald, and as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Mr. Greg Mulhall. How are we doing, Mr. Gavin Kelly? How are you doing, lads? Little bit wet today, gentlemen. Yeah, summer started on the. It's pissing rain. It's torrential rain. It is. Um, which affected our our promptness to get. Well, no. If we're being completely and utterly <laughs> truthful, Colin took us. Complete, we were on O'Connell Street and Colin took us completely the wrong direction. Yeah. He thought that... I thought you lived on Georgia Street. South Great Georgia yes. Street. Yes. Oh, you're nincompoop. I know. So <laughs> we walked in the rain. Mulhall uh, is a great leash name. It is. It is. You know, so uh, we're in good company. That's yes. Absolutely. Yeah, the voice you just heard is one of Mr. Senator David Norris. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, David. It's a great pleasure. Um, so I'll start. And I, I think we should also thank him for inviting us into, into his, his beautiful lovely home. home. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I think we are all kind of a little bit speechless coming in the door. I mean, it's it is a lovely rest- restored Georgian home. We we joked yeah. on the way over. Uh, I, I as we were crossing the Hapenny Bridge the first time, I said to Colin, uh, "Go on, text Dave there and tell him to turn on the heating." <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> And Colin said, "I wonder if you have an open fire." And uh, we have. There I am. We have been uh, treated to a lovely open fire. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a bit, it's a bit pathetic now because I just shoved more coal on. It was nearly out, uh, but it was blazing away merrily earlier on. Yeah, will, it will of, again. By the end of the podcast, it'll be another definitely. We'll get a fire lit. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, David, I'll start like I traditionally do start the podcast. And what was the initial thought when I asked you to do the podcast? Oh God, here's another one. Yeah. <laughs> I, say, I do quite a few of these. Yeah, I'd say I'd say you're a popular figure. Yeah, well, I've done a couple of podcasts. Most of them, I think, reach about ten people. 
but uh, uh, I like doing them, um, and I'm always very interested, particularly if they're general. I mean, sometimes they get stuck totally on the whole gay thing. Mm. Um, and uh, I like to think there's a lot more to me than that, mm. you know, because, I mean, I got involved here 40 years ago, um, and uh, the street was in a very bad state of dereliction. Uh, I started the Preservation Society, uh, which was launched 40 years ago in my drawing room. I've been here for about 42 years. Uh, and um, I played a significant role. You know, there was a house across the road that was going to be pulled down. It was in a matter of two weeks. And I got it out of the corporation and turned it into the James Joyce Centre. And it's completely restored now. Uh, I stopped them putting skyscraper flats on the lower end of the street. And I forced them to rebuild using the facades. Um, and I've been involved in a positive change of ownership of 12 out of the 48 houses. So that's quite a quite a, a, significant. a significant impact. Yeah. Just in your own immediate vicinity as well. Obviously, you've had a, a much larger impact nationwide. We'll get to that later yes. on. Yes. But um, tell us where it all began, David. What did you want to initially do growing up uh, as a young man? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> I, I, hadn't, I hadn't any great ambitions no. at all. I thought I'd like to be a writer. Mm. Yeah, and I wrote my first story at the age of six. It was called The Proud Potato. <laughs> it was a very moral fable okay. about the dangers of pride in the animal, in the vegetable kingdom. Yeah. But I never pursued that really very much. Uh, I have written, I, I wrote for the Evening Herald for three and a half years because the editor asked me. And I asked him two questions. I said, can I say what I want? He said, yes. And I said, do I get paid? And he said, yes. And I said, you're on. <laughs> and I did it for three and a half years, never missed a deadline. Um, and, of course, I wrote an autobiography, mm-hmm. uh, which was banned by RTE because of the title. I called it A, a Kick Against the Pricks. And once I saw <laughs> the word prick, they thought, oh! <laughs> they didn't realise it was a quotation from St. Paul. You know? Okay, that's niche. Yeah, so there we are. I mean, one cannot account for the ignorance of RTE. Mm. <laughs> yes. Um, actually, just to bring you back a little bit earlier, you weren't born in Ireland. You're no. Born... Yes, actually. Your place I... of birth it was a rather obscure one when I was doing my research. Would you Exotic. Remember? Exotic, that's a good Yes, it was yeah. then called Leopoldville in the Belgian Congo. I was born bang on the equator. Uh, at one o'clock lunchtime. So you were sent In the, the middle of July. Yeah. Yes. So very central, even July. So yeah, exactly. Yes. Were you um, in Congo for long? Six months. Six months. Yes. So I never remembered anything about it. I used to think my mother described the clinic where I was born, uh, the Clinique Reine Elizabeth, as a long, low, white building with starched and uniformed nurses in it and so on. And I thought, oh, I remember that. And then one day I was going past the Irish Hospital Sweepstakes office in Balls Bridge, which is a long, low, white building with a cardboard cut out of a nurse in front of it. <laughs> and I realised that I had thought I was born in the sweeps office. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, obviously, as we introduced you, you are a centre David Norris. Yes. So there's a political career behind yes. you, uh, an established one. Where did that begin? Well, I suppose it really began. Um, we never took any interest in politics. I mean, my... Uh, my my mother, my father was English, my mother uh, was from a family of Southern Irish Unionists uh, and strongly um, associated with the royal family. <laughs> and I still am a monarchist. Um, uh, but they didn't take any interest in politics at all. They thought it was all a charade. Um, and uh, until I aged about 11, 
persuaded them all to vote for the late Dr. Noel Brown, who is a huge hero of mine. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was a man who wiped out TB in this country. He was very courageous and really took up the most controversial uh, issues in Irish political life. Um, and then uh, I was in Trinity with Mary Robinson, and she was a friend and colleague, and we both were elected to Foundation Scholarship the same year. Uh, and she asked me to go on her committee when she was running for the Senate, and she was elected on her first shot. Uh, and that showed me that, um, among other things, if you ran for the Senate, you could uh, distribute election manifestos with your ideas in them to uh, quite a wide electorate. Uh, I mean, excuse me, it's now about 65,000, but it was 11,000 in those days. And um, uh, you do, do it free of charge at the taxpayer's expense. And I thought, how wonderful <laughs> to be able to promote all these subversive ideas uh, at the expense of the taxpayer. And I was the first person in Ireland to put abortion uh, on uh, an election manifesto uh, because I'd been brought up to think it was the most appalling crime possible, uh, the murder of an infant in the womb and all this kind of stuff. But the more I looked and thought of it, I thought how terribly tragic and sad uh, the situation was. Uh, and I could never understand how uh, third parties who were not involved in the relationship could dictate uh, to a 13-year-old girl who was pregnant as a result of rape by a neighbour that she had to keep the child for the nine months. No, I didn't see that at all. Um, or... Uh, with um, fatal fetal abnormality. Something that was just a lump of flesh with no uh, spinal column, no nervous system, no consciousness, nothing. Why should somebody be forced to keep that? Not at all, it's rubbish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it wasn't very popular with the electorate. <laughs> um, it's fair to say that throughout your career, like you have always been very progressive. You probably are one of the most progressive politicians in Ireland today. Looking at Ireland today, after, like I'd say, in the past even five to ten years, we've had the Gay Marriage Referendum, yes. we've had the Repeal the Eighth Referendum, both passed um, with flying colours. Yes. Um, do you still see Ireland as being, like, is Ireland progressive enough for your liking, or do you still see uh, major areas of improvement in the country? Yes, I, th- I, think, it's, I think it's pretty good. I, th- I do think it's pretty good. I mean, there are some small areas to be tidied up in the gay uh, area and so on. Uh, there is some degree of racism, uh, you know, hostility to the kind of incomers, uh, which one hears stories of abuse and, and so on. Uh, there is still a high level of um, uh, violence against women. Uh, there's a lot of alcoholism. I mean, that's one of the really dreadful problems in the country. Um, Actually, touching on that, David, yes. you know, obviously they, they've changed... The, the law regarding Good Friday yes. and pubs are open and, and what's your views on that? I voted against it. So did I. Yes. What was your reasoning for it? My reason was because we are a Christian country mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think it's too much to expect that we show respect for the most solemn day in the Christian calendar. Um, I also think that the people who run pubs are entitled to one day, day off, off in the bloody year. <laughs> you know, and why do people always have to have this? I, I, I don't understand it. I never understood the obsession with, you know, people going to the supermarket and stocking up on, on crates yeah. of beer and wine and, you know, spirits for one day. Yeah. Just because they're told for one day of the year, you are not allowed to drink in a public yes. house. Yes. 
and people just lose their shit. And Absolutely. They, and they say, oh, well, that can't happen. Well, you know, I objected because uh, they started licensing supermarkets and all kinds of shops in this area. Uh, and I objected, the police objected, the local council objected, and uh, the local residents objected. But it still went through. And I went on air and I said, I don't know who these bloody judges are. Uh, I, they, I, I think they must be lunatics. Um, uh, they certainly don't live in my area or they wouldn't allow this sort of thing. And one old judge, it turned out he was the only one uh, on it and he took an action against RTE. And I warned them, he's an awful shit. And I warned them, I said, you know, I said it twice. Oh, they said, no, he wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, he did. Took them twice. Did Oh, he won because RTE didn't defend. I wanted them to defend. Because, I mean, I said, I don't know who these people are. Now, I obviously wasn't attacking one person. Mm -hmm. One individual. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to say that that, that somebody who takes that attitude is a lunatic. It's a figure of speech. Did they ever hear of a figure of speech? You know, apparently now you're not allowed to say, you're mad. (laughs) God, ridiculous nonsense. And, of course, the other thing is, who would appear for RT against a judge? They might be turning up in court uh, representing a client again, and he might, you know... Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think it's disgraceful. I think judges should be very reluctant to take actions. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I didn't. it didn't cost me a penny. Yeah. And David, do you think there are any things of social reform in Ireland at the moment that could be dealt with or really should be prioritised? Because um, I, I think homelessness at the moment and the housing crisis. Homelessness is absolutely shocking. Mm. Uh, now, that, that goes right back to the financial crisis. Uh, and one of the problems about being gay and being kind of known for that is that uh, it kind of overshadows everything and people tend to pigeonhole you. I mean, I spotted the uh, financial crisis coming and I warned against it. I voted against the measures the government were taking. I asked them about the bank guarantee. I said, how much is it for? 400 billion. What is the gross national product of this country for the last year? The minister didn't know. They had to send out a telephone. It was 200 billion. And I said, you mean to tell me that you are signing a guarantee for more than twice the gross national product of the country? Are you mad? Um... And I gave a lecture down in UCC uh, about it. Um, I called it um, the big issues. And I took on everything, world population, the economic system, and so on and so forth. And I gave a definition of money, uh, which I've never seen anybody giving a definition of money uh, before. What, what was that definition? What was the definition? The de- definition was that it was the symbolic representation of energy. Okay. You know, because in the old days... Uh, you worked for a farmer mm-hmm. and in return he gave you a bag of potatoes. Mm-hmm. Then it moved on, he gave you half a bag of potatoes and a gold sovereign. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it became all money, paper money. You didn't even get gold. You got a piece of paper with the, the bear, the, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of whatever mm-hmm. it is in gold. Uh, then you have the stock exchange, people investing. Uh, then you, in, in factories and so on. And then you have the development of the stock exchange. You have people buying futures, you know, using wireless telegraphy uh, to buy things that don't exist. You know, I mean, it's, it's daft. And that led to some pimply little squirt in an office in London sending a 300-year-old bank down the drain, you know, by twiddling. These things happen. Yes. 
So I, I, my argument was that we need to go back to somewhere where there is um, um, a point of reference, at least, some connection uh, between the energy that you expend and the income that you get. And I think that also should deal with things like the ridiculous amounts of money that some people have, 400 billion and all this kind of, this is disgraceful. And, 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 and footballers getting, what is it? 300,000 pounds a week. Yeah, that kind of thing. Madness. I mean, it is real, really disproportionate. And this is a fairly modern uh, phenomenon. I mean, Stanley Matthews and these sort of people didn't get anything like that. Yeah. I, I completely fell out of love with soccer myself. Yes. When I was about 13 or 14, when, you know, the transfer market, they started spending, you know, instead of, like, what was Ronaldo bought for, like, 10 million odd yeah. or something? 17. 17, whatever. Like, they started going up to 100 million, you know, and that's just when there was too much of a gap there. Yes. That it, it just didn't resonate with me. And it's become a business. Yeah. Mm. And an awful lot of it's, it's controlled by Mr. Rupert Murdoch. Indeed. Yeah, you know, with Sky. Mm-hmm. I mean, I defy me. I was friendly with... A fellow who uh, was, he was um, uh, a television playwright. Um, he, he wrote uh, My Blue Remembered Skies and The Singing Detective. And these, I can't think of his name now, I knew. Um, but in any case, uh, he, he had psoriatic arthropathy. And so his whole skin was like a, a big blister. And he stopped smoking, or smoking all the time. But he hated Rupert Murdoch, okay. and we shared that in common. <laughs> and he, when he got cancer, he called his cancer Rupert. <laughs> and he said what he'd like to do is he'd like to get a gun and shoot him. But he was writing up against time, writing his last plays. And um, he said uh, that he couldn't because he wanted to devote his energy to writing the plays. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. And I thought of a play you know, that uh, he uh, announces this on television, he'd like to get, and God is bored sitting on his cloud, so he gives him a remission from the cancer, and he goes out and gets the gun and plugs Murdoch. Uh, That's Act 2. Act 3 is the court trial uh, where uh, he's accused uh, of murdering Murdoch, and he admits uh, guilt, but suddenly there's a puff of smoke and God appears in the witness box as a character reference and he's exonerated. <laughs> <laughs> um, so David, you're, you're quite the academic yourself. Was, did you enjoy school as a, as, a, as a young guy? Well, I went to several schools. I mean, my brother and myself uh, were sent to an appalling boarding school in Clyde Road. And we lived in Ballsbridge, so it's just down the road from okay. us. Um, it's now, again, a good school, mm-hmm. but it was shocking at that stage. Uh, the violence and the abuse of the children was just appalling. Um, and uh, uh, it destroyed my brother's life, uh, but I survived it and escaped. And I went to the high school in Harcourt Street, uh, whose other pupils included W.B. Yeats, the poet, mm-hmm. uh, and Leopold Bloom from Joyce's Ulysses. Right. Harper uh, Street, known for other things now, really. But, uh, <laughs> nightclubs. Yeah, mainly. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, well, I loved that school because the teachers were motivated by uh, trying to convey their sense of love of their subject okay. to us. And there was no violence at all, uh, you know. And how long did you spend in the boarding school? I suppose about four or five years. Okay. 
Yeah. Did I was you? always boarding, but summer, summertime I was boarding, and there's a poor little fellow there whose, whose parents drank, and all of us were kind of casualties of life in some way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, one fellow's parents drank, uh, another fellow's parents were divorced, another, they were abroad, and all, and my father had died. And uh, so on. So they, they tried, they, as I said, they tried to send my brother and myself to my father's public school in England, mm -hmm. and we refused, and we were sent to this place instead. And then I went to St Andrews, which I absolutely loved. Loved it. Brilliant. Yeah. I went to boarding school myself. Did you? I did. Where? Knockbeg in, in Carlow. Oh, very good. Yeah, so yes. I spent five years there. I was actually in the, uh, the last year of boarding before it closed down. Oh. So, and uh, did you enjoy it? I did. I good. And uh, now it wasn't. Your usual boarding school that, you know, uh, traditionally, you know, you'd, you'd only come home once every three months or yes. even once a month. I came home every weekend. That's lovely. So it was fine, you know. Yeah. And uh, it was, what, 35, 40 minutes. And you had good pals in it. Yeah, good pals in it. And uh, alumni include uh, one of our uh, friends of the podcast. Oh, uh, do we have to name drop him in every single podcast? Who is he? Uh, Ross. Ross, M Mr. Ross Munley. Uh, he's a current leash footballer. He's in his... Oh, very good. 17th year as a senior intercounty footballer, and he also happens to be the director of alumni relations at DCB. Good for him. Good so, for him. Ross does help us getting a couple of interviews. Good. My so relations with, with, with DCU alumni is, is slightly fraught. Okay. I mean, I did an interview with uh, one fellow, and I helped him a lot. I did a radio broadcast out there for him and everything else. During the presidential election, he turned on me and wrote all kinds of shit about me. Uh, and um, uh, I saw him, and, and he said hello to me afterwards. I said, come here, you little shit. How dare you approach me or speak to me or address me in any fashion whatever after the disgraceful way in which you attacked me after my kindness to you. I said, and you know, your lies cost your newspaper £250,000 in the <laughs> defamation court. Yeah, <laughs> off he went. And, and I saw him the next day, and he got so embarrassed, he fell down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like something I'm going to do. Or Colin. Yeah. Or Colin. Yeah. Uh, um, David, I have a question. Uh, Training college lecturer. Yes. What's David Norris like? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to sit in the Give us a picture. Paint a picture for us. Well, I'll tell you the things. Some of my colleagues used to read from 30-year-old yellowing notes, you know, like this. I never did. I mean, the most I would have would be a little card about that size with a couple of headlines on it in case I got lost. Uh, but I used to act things out. Okay. Uh, and my lectures were funny. I, you know, I, I put money on it. People used to laugh. And there'd be... Um, the lecture, the theatre would be absolutely full. Mm -hmm. People came from medicine, from archaeology, from whatever it was. Uh, and they'd be sitting all the way down the stairs. Um, and... Um, yeah, uh, I, I was a, I was a good a good lecturer, and I met a woman about two years ago in Trinity. She's now a granny, and she was pushing a pram through the thing. She said, "I just wanted to say to you, as you know, I so much enjoyed your lectures, but I've only just been realizing now, when I'm taken to reading again, how much I learned, because my view was people could learn and absorb an enormous amount of technical information without it being painful." Mm -hmm. I mean, I gave a very high-powered series of lectures on the aesthetics of comedy. Okay. And I came in to the uh, lecture theatre riding on a bicycle in a three-piece suit uh, with uh, a clown's bald pate with shock of red hair coming out of it 
uh, and a little dicky bird on the top. And when I pushed a bulb in my pocket, the dicky bird went dink, 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 and spat water out of the front row. <laughs> and one of the points of, of my lectures was that comedy came from the lease of tension when there were two contradictory messages, one overlaying the other. And of course, it's perfectly illustrated by the fact I was giving this thing about I reconstructed the lost second book of Aristotle's Poetics, the one about comedy. Okay. Uh, and uh, it was all frightfully high-powered and so on. But at the same time, I was giving them the, the, the message through what I was doing. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, it, break, it probably breaks up the lecture quite well. You, you, you keep their attention for the entire oh, yeah. hour-long duration. Yeah. And... Except once. Oh. I was knocked off my bicycle uh, coming in to, to Trinity. And after half an hour, I said, look, I don't know if you can make any sense of what I'm saying, but I can't. <laughs> and I said, I was knocked off my bicycle and I nearly killed. <laughs> I'll give you another lecture instead on Thursday. <laughs> Speaking of, is there any lectures or topics that you uh, particularly enjoyed lecturing on? Joyce. Joyce, yeah. 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 Joyce was terrific. E.M. Forster. Mm. Uh, I don't know if he's a name familiar with you at all. E.M. Forster. Howard's End, A Room with a View. Room with a View, yeah. yeah. Um, and... Um, there was always something very odd about Forster. He couldn't seem to complete the novels. And there were peculiar aspects of his characterization. And he died in 1970, at a great age. And uh, it came out that he was gay. Oh. I was thrilled because this explained everything. You know, it explained why his characters, men and women, were so uncomfortable when he shoved them into a clinch. You know? Margaret, he said huskily, turning and taking her in his arms. His pince-nez fell between them. I mean, absolutely embarrassing and wonderfully funny. And his, the, the motif was only connect, but he didn't connect. Because only once, and the novel was only published after his death, a novel called Morris, where he wrote about gay things. Yeah. And one of the parents wrote to the provost and objected. Uh, not that I was a bad teacher, but that I was an extremely good teacher and I might be a role model and turn their sons gay. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to the prophet, well, look, I mean, I was taught by people as far as I know, they were all heterosexual. It didn't damage me in any way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you touched on it there. Obviously, you ran for to be the country's president in 2011. I did. Um, but like before, you, like the campaign was over the course of the year, but how long before do you make that kind of decision? Like, when did you first kind of think this is something that I could, I could do? I tell you what, I had Jerry Ryan, the broadcaster. The great, yeah. Yes, uh, he was a friend of mine, I liked him. Uh, and I had him in for lunch in Linster House, and there were all kinds of old dears and old fellows who were in with different TDs for lunch and to do a tour of the house and everything. And um, they all came over and said, oh, you're great. Oh, it's lovely to see you. Oh, I love you on television. Oh, you should go for the presidency. And Jerry Ryan was standing back and looking at him. And he said, you know, I think you could do it. And then this fellow, Liam McCabe, approached me. And he had, this, had the whole thing mapped out, a whole strategy. And it was all balls. But I thought I was frightfully impressed by it. <laughs> and I decided to give it a go. Yeah. Was it a tough decision to make? Because you are... If you're uh, putting yourself out for presence, you're putting yourself very much in the public eye. Yes, but I didn't realise they'd be so utterly dishonest. Mm. I didn't realise that they would manufacture lies. There's one old bitch called Helen Lucy Burke, 
And she had done a, a, an interview that turned out to be fraudulent subsequently with me um, in 2000. I did it against my better judgment. She pushed and pushed and pushed. I said, no, I don't want to because you're only talking about sex. No, 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 she wouldn't. She guaranteed she wouldn't. 19 of the 20 questions were about sex. Uh, but as part of the action I took against her and RTE, we got discovery and we got the original recordings of the interview and what she published was a complete distortion of everything I said. Complete. I mean, she took bits of answers uh, and stuck them onto questions that were completely different. You know? And she changed things I'd said. It was, it was just shocking. Just absolutely shocking. Uh, and I tried to take action against her at the time, but I couldn't get a barrister to take it because of the word paedophilia. Yeah. They said, once the word paedophilia is in it, you're finished. And I, that's dreadful, because I think you should be allowed to discuss anything, including paedophilia. You know, just burying it is, is dangerous. You should be able to talk about it. You know, and if I looked at it, and I said this at the time, with regard to the age of consent, there is no agreement in Europe about the age of consent. It ranges from 12 to 21, you know. So there is absolutely no agreement uh, there. And I don't see the point in prosecuting children for sexual offences. But of course, that, and then I attacked the government legislation because it was government legislation, that meant, and this, this shows you where political correctness leads you. Under which a sexually inexperienced 14-year-old boy could be convicted of rape if he was seduced by a sexually experienced 18-year-old girl. Now, that's madness, in my opinion. It defies logic. And I said it. <laughs> and got me into, then I was a paedophile. And yeah, like you obviously... You, and I'm not. I don't even like children. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly don't see the point of them sexually. I mean, heterosexual men like women with big tits and fannies and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I like men with muscles and hair on their thighs. <laughs> so, I mean, without the secondary characteristics of sexual, I don't see what there is to attract you. What attracts you about an infant? I do not understand it. Um, you did fe face obviously quite a lot of opposition then during your presidential race and you did drop out at one point was it a tough decision to go back and take up the race once again? especially considering how you know how you've been doing in the polls you've been so far ahead yes well I'll tell you see, the reason I dropped out was because when all this stuff started breaking my wonderful campaign team just buggered off I was left on my own with Miriam my secretary and my neighbour Murn across the street that was all that was left of the whole campaign you know, none of, not one of them to this very day has resigned officially to me. They've never written to me or spoken to me or telephoned me and said, I resign. No, where did I see it? On the nine o'clock news. That was a happy surprise. <laughs> I hope you're still paying them, Davis. Oh, no, but they did. Oh, they made bloody sure they got paid. Wow. Yeah, well, the ones that were getting paid got paid. Yes, they did. The absolute shite bags. And then when you, when you re-entered the election, obviously... Um, were, were you, how did you rate your chances, I suppose, at that point? Well, I don't know. I was still doing relatively well mm -hmm. in the polls at that stage, and an awful lot of people. But the problem was, among the various problems, that people didn't realise I'd gone back in the race. Oh. 
Oh. A lot of them didn't because the number of people said to me, oh, I would have voted for you if you'd been in it. But I was in it. But they didn't realise. And you see, my awful campaign team, uh, they smothered me. I mean, I, I was saying to you, I spoke down in Waterford and I got a standing ovation. Uh, and the, the fellow who was running the campaign said, oh, you're a disgrace, you're a disaster, it's hopeless. And, you know, uh, what you want to do is to come off as being bland. They wrote speeches for me. Unutterable drivel. And once I was reading one, and I read the first page, then I said, fuck this, and I threw it away. And I said, look, this is what they want me to say, but I'm not going to say it. This is what I want to say. You know? uh, but also, the radio and television interviewers, with the exception of Ray Darcy and Pat Kenny, they gave me a chance. Not one other person gave me a chance at all. And they lied to me. They said they would give me a chance to put out my stall politically. They didn't. They just kept going about the scandals, the scandals, the scandals, the scandals. Fixated on us. Yes. And it turned out afterwards I won 10 libel actions. So there were no scandals. <laughs> it was all rubbish. Mm. Mm. Quick well, just, yeah. 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 I actually have questions to ask at the end. Oh, Are you getting too hot? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot my water. Sorry. Well, I'd have a slug of the tea that I uh, very generously didn't offer you. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, I've already had two cups of coffee today, so it's probably for the best that yeah. I don't want anymore. Uh, David, yeah, I wanted to ask, you mentioned there political correctness, and you know, when you're campaigning politically, I think the objective, as you saw, is to kind of characters that assassinate people. Yes. And especially now with social media, it's so much easier to do that and have a mob mentality in people. Is there any way we can kind of get out of this moment of political correctness in fact yes. that people are being... Absolutely. Do what I do. I have never switched a computer on in my entire life. <laughs> I've never switched it on or off, and I never intend to. Uh, I did have a Twitter account, uh, but my neighbour, Murren, who was wonderful, managed the campaign for me. The words were always mine, but she did the twiddling. I never twiddled once. <laughs> And one of my tweets was repeated 1.5 million times. And the Irish Times did an article saying it was the best uh, um, uh, electronic media campaign ever. What, what was that tweet? If you can remember. I can't remember. Oh. I, I think it was some, yes, it was about the, the Irish Times, some idiot in the Irish Times. Two of them actually said the thing to do would be to write across the, 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 the ballot paper. Uh, once you do that, your, your ballot is invalid. Yes. Of course you shouldn't do it. It's madness. Madness. And you see, uh, uh, that, that was during the campaign to... Um, Ender Kenny's campaign to abolish the Senate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in hospital with a very aggressive cancer. And uh, Fergal Quinn and Catherine Zapone took over the campaign to save the Senate and they made a complete disastrous balls of it. They were losing hand over fist. And I discharged myself from hospital, came in a taxi, and I said, get off the stage. You, you are losing. We're going to lose the Senate because of you. And myself, John Crown, and Sean Barrett from Trinity turned around in two weeks. Uh, I went on every local radio station. I put out my tweets, and I made passionate speeches in the Senate. Uh, and the effect was amazing because an awful lot of people contacted me 
uh, saying, oh, I heard you on Radio Waterford, I heard you on Radio Donegal, I didn't realise what it was about, now I'm voting to keep the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, John Barrett did all the universities, and Don Crown made mincemeat out of cabinet ministers every single night for two weeks on the late debate on Radio Air. Mm-hmm. So we did it, we did it. But it was a, it was a close-run thing. It was a close-run thing. Just going back to your point about uh, switching off the computer, if you're wanting to delete or defeat uh, the political correct society that we have now, is that realistic, though? Is it realistic to expect people... Well, I think you can limit it. I think you can limit it. I mean, what you don't read doesn't hurt you. Mm. You know? Um, uh, And you see, the thing is, it's the anonymity of the computer Oops, you know yeah. people are terribly brave and they don't have to put their name to something yes you know but yeah. i mean i never let these things affect me i mean in the old days i used to get 17 pages on ruled note paper written in green ink underlined with exclamation marks in red biro and i'd know it was a, a, a lunatic mm. and i would write back to them and provoke them <laughs> <laughs> Um, so at this stage nowadays... And they were terrible. They always made me laugh. I mean, I got people ringing me here. One fellow said, you dirty fucking ass fucker, you cunt, you bollocks, you all this other stuff. And then he said, I'd like to come around there and shove a submachine gun up your ass and pull the trigger. Then he thought for a moment, he said, only I suppose you'd fucking enjoy that. <laughs> well, yeah. And these were the balanced, normal people. Yeah. I was the odd one out. This is what you're putting up with, like. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, David, you're actually our second politician. Yeah, I think second podcast. Yeah. Who was the first? Joan Burton. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, yeah, we actually we we did get to go to Leinster House. Um, now, we, we were offered a tour by Joan, but we actually had to leave. Um, yeah, but it's no bloody use anyway, because the best parts of it are closed down for restoration. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, the Senate is a spectacular room. It's stunning. It was the, the Duke's uh, ballroom and picture gallery, mm-hmm. and it is stunning. It, um, it, it, it has plaster work that I identified as being by Michael Stapleton. Uh, the the the, the, the House authorities tried to make out was by the Lafrancini brothers. It certainly was not. Couldn't possibly. Nobody who knew anything could say it was by the Francinis. Um, and uh, I remember uh, you used to hear people coming in. They'd look up and say, "Ah, oh, it's a beautiful walk. Oh God, it's all. Oh, they could do things in them days, but they couldn't do them nowadays. Oh no, they haven't got the talent. Oh yes, they bloody have." Half the ceiling was taken down in the previous restoration and put back by young Irish stuccadors. There you go. Yeah, so it can be done. Um, David, it's fair to say now that you've accomplished quite a lot in your career, but are you like? I, I just want to know, like, how do you still keep your energy now at this stage? Yeah, how do you, how do you maintain the grow? Well, I love it. I love the Senate. I mean, at the moment, I've spent the afternoon this morning with Michael McDowell, just the two of us, uh, in in the Senate, and Charlie Flanagan. Oh, there you go. Good leash uh, Yes. And um, we, we, we have spoken for over 100 hours on the Shane Ross Judicial Appointments Bill. Okay. Uh, and we're determined to try and hold it up and stop it in its tracks, if possible. And the government, uh, in, in the last week of the last session, uh, tried to guillotine it. And I put down a motion, a cunningly worded motion, uh, and pulled a vote on it to stop them. Uh, and uh, it turned out it was an equality of votes, so the Cahillac voted with the government. So I called a walkthrough vote, and we won by two votes, stopping them. Uh, and I'm going to keep doing that. 
you know. Okay. And Michael McDougall says he's not filibustering. I'm quite honest about it. I say, I am filibustering. It is a perfectly legitimate political tactic to kill off legislation that you think is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I do. And I was a friend of Shane Ross's for 20 years. But I think he's the greatest shit unhung. <laughs> I do. I think he's a hypocrite. Hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Oh, what about if he does? I doubt, yeah, I don't think so. Oh, he has his spies everywhere. But he knows what I think about him. I mean, I said to him when he was made a minister, I said, congratulations, Shane, you're absolutely qualified to be a minister. You're unsullied by the slightest taint of principle. And he laughed and he said, yes, you're right. (laughs) I have to give him that. He has a a sense of humour. Yes. And he was a terrific drinker and a frightful smoker. And he gave up both. But he still, at his parties, uh, used to make sure that all his guests had the best wine and everything. Yeah. So that, that's a good... Everybody has different qualities, mm-hmm. yes. But he, he's, he's a nasty person to be in a constituency with. You couldn't trust him one inch. Mm-hmm. David, how do you relax? We discussed there that you don't use computer or internet. And... I read an enormous amount. Right. Yeah. I, I could read up to a book a, 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 book a day. Wow. Yeah. But they're all slop. You know, I, I don't exercise my intellect particularly, uh, except occasionally. Um, I mean, I, I, mostly what I read is American detective fiction. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Mm. Yeah. Lee Child. You see, you've got the, the Vox TV, the classic TV. Um, yeah, it's about... Thing I know when I came in. It's about 40 years old. <laughs> it's a cathode ray tube. <laughs> <laughs> and I have an even older one in the kitchen that's black and white portable. Wow. Yeah. Very good. Uh, anything else? Just relax. Well, I watched this, you yeah. see. I watched, I, when you came in, I was watching Rumpole of the Bailey. <laughs> Have you seen Rumpole? No. Oh, he's wonderful. Played by an Australian actor called Leo McKern. Mm. Uh, and it, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff, cross-examination. He's very irreverent and hates all the judges and um, quotes Wordsworth all the time. This is very interesting, very interesting. Now, I know we've, we've asked this question to most of our guests and we do get some great responses, but I'm looking forward to hearing David's in particular. David, three guests living or dead that you'd invite to a dinner party? James Joyce. I was going to say he's yes. a shoe-in, yeah. Uh, Raoul Wallenberg. Raoul Wallenberg was a Swedish diplomat who during the last days of the Second World War got himself posted to Budapest and he saved between ten and 100,000 Jewish people by going unarmed onto the trains taking them to Auschwitz uh, and issuing them with Swedish passports. Wow, he was a wonderful man. Incredible. And he disappeared after the war. He was captured by the Russians, and uh, they denied having him, but it eventually came out that uh, they, they, they meant it, said he had died in 1947. He certainly didn't. He lived well into the 1960s and 70s appalling that he was just abandoned and I discovered why uh, because uh, I was asked to uh, do uh, to talk with the uh, Swedish cultural attaché in London who was over here on visit he wanted to talk about James Joyce and I said okay as long as I can talk to him about Wallenberg so I did and there was a film made about Wallenberg by Richard Chamberlain starring as, as Wallenberg and he said, well, what did you think of that film? And I said, well, I thought it was a bit chocolate boxy. I was glad it was done, but I thought it was chocolate boxy. And particularly the bit where Chamberlain 
um, jumps on a train carrying this Hungarian countess with a rose between his teeth and two bottles of champagne. I said, I didn't think that was a bit credible. Oh, not at all, of course. I said, well, Wallenberg was an instant woman. And I let that pass for me. And then I said, what did you mean he was an instant woman? And I said, he said, just that, he was an instant woman. I said, did you mean he was gay? And he said, oh, yes. And that's why he was forgotten. That's why they abandoned him. You know, there was that prejudice at that time. And even his family did nothing for him. Um, uh, it, was, it was utterly shocking. But I never said that in my campaign because I knew that once I said that he was gay, they said, ah, you see, that's why I was interested in him. But it wasn't. I was interested in him long before I heard that. Yeah, and the third one, who would the third one be? Maybe the Dalai Lama. Okay. Yes. I've met the Dalai Lama many times. Yeah. Yes, yes. And um, I had a falling out with him. Only David Morris. Because he made this awful speech uh, in San Francisco, of all places, uh, condemning homosexuality. And he said there were in-holes and out-holes and all this kind of stuff. That really finished me off. Because, you know, my attitude is... Um, as the Latin tag quoted by Yeats, interurinus et fasces, uh, we, are we are born between pissing and shitting. And that's absolutely true. You know? And the penis is used for pissing. You know? So what about it? Who gives a shit anyway? Uh, and a lot of people think the best sex is dirty anyway. Um, but uh, I said to him, uh, and he said, you shouldn't use your hands to pleasure yourself and all that. And I said, come on, for God's sake. I wrote to him, I said, uh, don't think I haven't. I was in the Ganden Monastery in Tibet and I saw the elephant god, whatever his name is, I can't think of his name now. I had it there a minute ago, but it's gone, uh, having the most colossal wank and the sperm squirting all over the ceiling. <laughs> I said, Who are you fooling? So there was, there was a silence for about two years and then the Christmas card started again. <laughs> Actually, speaking of Christmas card lists, David, I'd say you've got quite a list. Do you say Christmas cards? I sent 300. Wow. And yeah, who, who would you say is the most notable? Most notable, I suppose. I suppose, you see, I mean, I never judged people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would oppose them politically, but I wouldn't judge them on a human level. And I suppose I used to exchange cards with Charlie Hoy. Oh. Uh, because I thought he was the most talented man. I didn't agree with him some of the time. And I thought some of his ideas were very insulting. I mean, the idea of this idea, business that you have to go to a, chem to a doctor to get a prescription for a bit of rubber mm -hmm. as a contraceptive, and he described that as an Irish solution to an Irish problem, I thought that was very insulting to Ireland, you know. Um, uh, but I could sort of understand the way he sort of fiddled the books, okay. you know, because he invented, with, with the other fellow, the financier fellow, uh, the um, uh, the um, financial services centre, and I took great delight in pillaring that and laughing at it and joking about it and making a pig's ear of it and all those. But he was hundred percent right, and it earned hundreds of millions for the country. Mm -hmm. And I suppose he probably thought, well, I'm entitled to me finder's fee, <laughs> you know, my percentage on it. Now, um, yeah. yes. Yeah. And now, would you, obviously, 
perhaps maybe your secretary writes cards or would you would you personally oh i write them oh really oh i write them and during elections i i, I won't be able to do it anymore because it's, it, we don't get the envelopes anymore they, they've cut us down we used to get three thousand envelopes a month now we get 250. you know they've cut it down um i used to write i used to save up the envelopes and I, I used to send out 65,000 hand-signed, personally addressed uh, letters. Wow. Yeah. When I say personally addressed, I mean the computer addressed them personally, but I signed them by yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah. And I used to, if I saw a name I recognised or saw, thought of something to say, I'd put something down. You know, I remember there's one, <laughs> one uh, fellow in Cornwall, okay. and uh, he lived in a house called Toad Hall. So I wrote, I said, I'm delighted to see Toad Hall is still inhabited. How are my old friends Mooley and Ratty? <laughs> you know, from the winter, the winter yeah. was Toad Hall. <laughs> and there was another one, there was a woman called Avril Bennett. And I wrote to her, I said, dear Ms. Bennett, I do hope you'll vote for me. You were my mother's best friend in Alexandra College in 1919. And I happily shoved it in the post, and then I looked her up again, and I saw that she had uh, graduated in 1983. So she was unlikely to be flattered by the thought that she was my mother's best friend in 1919. <laughs> Just a 64 year gap there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, David, any voices? Do you have any voices? Masturbation. Okay. <laughs> you were all guilty of that time. Some more than others. Oh, don't make me laugh. I'm sure I have lots of voices. Smoke? Not at the moment. Oh. No. And I'm a very peculiar person in the sense that I... Um, uh, I don't inhale. Oh. Oh, I would if it was a joint. Okay. But, uh, definitely not a cigarette. Um, and I just kind of puff it and blow it out and all this kind of like a cigar or something. Yeah, so I don't think it does me a huge amount of damage. But I, I give it up from time to time. I'm my ex, Ezra, mm -hmm. uh, poor old Ezra, he's had an awfully rough time. He, he, he's been persecuted by the Israeli government yes. because he's an Israeli Jew. Uh, who supports the Palestinians and they're always arresting him on trumped up charges and the Irish newspapers put Norris's lover on yes. murder charge and then they never report when it's thrown out by, by the judge uh, but he was beaten and attacked in jail and all this kind of stuff and he had a stroke mm. so um, I, had, I had him over and he smokes terribly heavily so I brainwashed him out of smoking Okay, how did you manage that? I said to him no smoking! No smoking! <laughs> I, th I think if Colin was a smoker, I think that might have done the trick. Yeah, I think I'm yeah. pretty much scared out of <laughs> And, and I said to him, do you want to die? You've already had a stroke. You know, you know perfectly bloody well. And I said, I hear you from my room coughing your lungs out mm -hmm. all the time. My mother, by the way, had a wonderful story about friends of hers in uh, Cambridge in the 1920s. Uh, one of them was a vet, one of them was a geographer, I mean, one was a stu student for Anglican orders. Okay. And the Anglican divine in the making uh, smoked like a chimney, he was coughing all the time. Uh, his friend said to him, you know, you'd want to watch out. If you don't stop this smoking one of these days, you'll cough your guts up. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, come on, <laughs> what absolute rubbish. Anyway, they got him well stewed with drink, put him to bed, and... Uh, they, uh, the vet had that morning dissected out the liver and lights and lungs of a large rabbit. And they put it to bed and they put the lungs in the tooth glass beside the bed. And the next morning they were waiting for him to come down the stairs and he came down and they said, oh, you're looking a bit green around the gills. Oh, oh everything all right? Oh, 
He says, no, when, I, when you told me that uh, if I didn't stop smoking, I'd cough my guts up, I didn't believe you. I couldn't credit it. But, you know, last night it seems to have happened. But with the help of God and a toothbrush, I got them all back down again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it to you. That'll, that'll. Yes, yes, I'll tell you, I have, um, well, th- those prints are very good, the contemporary uh, prints uh, of, um, what's his name, uh, the great cartoonist of the 18th century, it's the Rake's Progress. paintings uh, of the Stoker family. Um, there were a big medical family in Dublin in the 19th century. There were at one stage 11 Stoker doctors all related in the medical wow. reference. Um, and one of them in the 18th century, Bartholomew Stoker, was a painter. And I have a number of his uh, pictures. So I like those. Um, and of course, then there are the 17 or 18 portraits of myself of <laughs> varying quality. One of them, Stoker's, by the way, one of them wrote Dracula. He was oh, a cousin wow. of my grandma's. Brown. Brown, yeah. yes. <laughs> and uh, they, were, they organized a big conference about, about Dracula in Trinity uh, when they made a book of the city. And all the relations came over here and they had afternoon tea here and all that sort of inspected the portraits and so on. And a grandson said to me, uh, oh, that was all frightfully interesting, all this academic stuff, but um, a little bit over my head. I said, you know, my grandfather told my father what actually happened was, uh, because he was was agent for um, the the great uh, actor, Henry Irving, so Henry Irving, that Irving had a first night and Stoker himself went off out on the skite and had an enormous meal of dressed crab washed down by gallons of champagne and uh, all night, Brown was tossed around the bed with belly aching. In the morning, he had Dracula written. It was all indigestion. <laughs> <laughs> so I rather like that. Yeah. You know. um, um, so that would be a painting that I like. And then I have a painting by a fellow called English, painting of an owl, that I bought. I, I rather liked it, yes. Um, if you were to take a tipple now, David, what, what would your drink of choice be? Well, I quite like port. I used to drink uh, whiskey, and either one of the best whiskeys was Paddy, which is a very ordinary yeah, whiskey, but it's very nice, yeah. uh, very very good whiskey. One of the best whiskeys is uh, Mitchell's Green Spot. Mm. It's like a liqueur. It's absolutely yeah. wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, but I don't. I hardly drink at all now no, because yeah. I have the cancer. You see, mm. and that was the result of the presidential election. I asked the surgeon, and he said, "Yes, quite likely." Uh, the, the stress, the stress of, 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 of the election. And you see, my liver was already weakened because I, I did a job uh, in 1994 for the government as a kind of roving ambassador in Eastern Europe and, and, and Scandinavia. And in Budapest, I started feeling ill. And it turned out I got some very peculiar form of hepatitis from yes. the water. I read a bit much, yeah. yeah. <gasps> yeah. Um, how long was the cancer in the liver? How long did it last really for you? Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how long I had it. Uh, but I knew there was something wrong. I kept going to the doctor and so on. Eventually, they said, oh, I'll refer you to a liver specialist. But before I got the results, 
I got the most excruciating pain. I don't know. I didn't know such pain was possible at one o'clock in the morning on Sunday. And uh, I, uh, I said, I can't ring a doctor at this time of the night. So I suffered through it and it went away eventually after 20 minutes. Then I came back and then it went away and then I came back and I said, oh God, uh, seven o'clock in the morning, I'm gonna to have to ring them. So they said, get into hospital at once. So I went across the road to Mern and I rang the bell and she'd been locked in by mistake by her husband who left for the office early. And she was jumping up and down saying, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. And I got another attack and I fell on the ground. So there I was riding around on the ground and Mern jumping up and down. And <laughs> so eventually I got to the hospital and uh, I'll tell you the longest three minutes in the world are the three minutes you wait between the writing of the prescription for morphine and delivering it. Okay. Yeah. But once I had the morphine, I was grand. Oh, yeah, I top of the world. It's wonderful stuff. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I was uh, high as a kite under the influence of morphine. I went sailing off down the corridor on a, a voyage of discovery. And uh, suddenly I was jumped on by this female. And I said, Un unhand me, you trollop. How dare you? I wasn't near the bank. It's not my gun. They're not my fingerprints. I'm an Irish citizen. I demand the right to go to the European court. <laughs> so she said, what do you think you're doing? And she said, I'm protecting your modesty. I said, there you are. You see, you're a liar as well. How could you possibly protect something that has never existed? I've never been modest. <laughs> No, yeah, great fun. Yeah. And the same, when, when they were doing one of the early operations, uh, the surgeon came down. I was, I'd just been hooked up to the anaesthetic. <clears throat> and um, I was beginning to waft off. And he said, how are we this morning? And you know, they shave you. They put on little frilly things on you. And I said, bloody gorgeous, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> I put on my frilly knickers just for you. <laughs> Um, I enjoyed hospital enormously. Yeah. And I have to say, I cannot speak highly enough for the Irish Health Service. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Once you get in, and it's not easy sometimes to get in. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was treated as a public patient for the, for the liver really? cancer. Yes, you have to be, because okay. it is a public operation. Okay. And that's grand, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but um, both the public and private were absolutely wonderful. And you see, one of these people don't appreciate it is the utter selfishness of a huge number of Irish patients. Okay. The number of appointments, hundreds of thousands each year in every hospital that are missed. Oh, of course, yeah. You know, what the hell are they at? Wasting people's time like that. And then complaining about the health service. I think it's dreadful. Um, David, bring me back to... College. We'll, we'll bring it to college now, just for our own perspectives. So, um, for our first year in DCU, um, I'm actually a mature, mature student. I'm, I'm slightly older than the lads. Yeah, take a shot every time Greg tells the podcast. <laughs> yes, <Yeah, laughs> exactly. And, uh, How old are you? Uh, take a guess. Yeah, take 26. Ooh, very nice. Basically, basically 26. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be 26 in September. But, uh, so, we all came to Dublin. Uh, the two lads had their first college experience. And all three of us ended up in digs. Mm -hmm. So Colm ended up with a family in Donnacarney, still with them, who foolishly took him back for a second year. Uh, Gavin was in Diggs in Clontarf, in Clontarf, yeah. and he moved. He got a house. Um, whereas I lived in Diggs in Marino with a ninety-year-old man. Oh, how lovely! Very lovely. I'd say you were a great company for him. I think we were both good company. Each other, yeah. Is he still alive? He is. Good he is. for him. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to visit him after. Oh, how today. lovely. How lovely. I haven't seen him in a couple of weeks. I've been, I've been busy with a new job, but I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. We'll probably have a can or two of Guinness, depending Good. on his mood. 
Um, now, similar to yourself, Tom had cancer, and he was explicitly told, do not drink. He, do, he, it, he, he says it is one of his few um, indulgences in life. Well, at 90, it's yes. hardly going to do him much damage. That's exactly what he says. Yeah. So, and he, he actually maintains that the Guinness has helped him live as long as he has. Guinness is good for you. You see? Yes. Um, and he is also fond of a drop of Jemmy. Mm. Mm. He, he, he likes he likes Jemmy Chaser now. Um, David, do you see any development in the housing crisis? For you know, there, there's we we actually personally know quite a few people who you know were accepted to courses here in Dublin and had to defer. Um, no, I don't. I do not, uh, because first of all, uh, the government's more or less invited in the vulture funds. Mm-hmm. I think they should be excluded by law from this country. Really, I do. Yes. And I think the cuckoo fund's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. They should be kept out. Um, uh, Michael Noonan, who's a very decent man, and I often agree with him, um, he said that they were very good, uh, that vultures are useful, they pick the flesh off the corpses. But these people are not picking the flesh off the corpses, they're picking, picking flesh off the living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have to say, I despise 1916 and everything it stands for. Really? I do, yes, absolutely. Um, but um, what would those people that we've recently been celebrating think about an Ireland in which after the campaigns of the 19th century to get rid of eviction, we have eviction mm-hmm. and it's welcomed in this country. I think that is an absolute betrayal mm-hmm. of, of everything that Ireland stands for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but it's continuing. And it's getting worse. And they say, ah, nobody died of it. Yes, they bloody did die of it. The number of suicides as a result of financial pressure and evictions and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and that's one thing I would have done as president. I would have gone in the state car with the flags on it and parked outside the house where they were evicting people and protested as president of Ireland. I did it down the road here. Really? Yes, when a woman was pu- tried to be pushed out of a house she'd lived in for 60 years. Wow. It's, I find it absolutely shocking, mm-hmm. shocking beyond belief uh, that this is tolerable in this country. Whatever about people who bought houses for investment and apartments and all this kind of stuff, no, your home should be uh, inviolate, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, it's... It, it's it's so rampant that, but it's nearly become the norm now. Oh yes, yeah, which is and the rents are terrible. I mean, I put half my libel damages into a flat in Ballsbridge. Now it's a beautiful flat, the height of luxury, uh, but it's only one bedroom. Do you know what I'm getting for it? One thousand eight hundred and fifty a month. Wow. And that's the norm. Yeah. I mean, I actually I, I feel guilty, mm-hmm. but I don't really know what to do. What do I do with the money? I had it lying in the bank, getting nothing. Mm-hmm. Might as well earn something on it, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a flat downstairs as well, a luxury flat. The basement was, was in an appalling state, uh, and I spent a huge amount of money on it, and it turned into a luxury flat. And uh, I had tenants until a couple of months ago, awfully nice. I never put the rent up. Oh. But I have now with these new people uh, because I, I, I've never met them I don't know who they are oh, I don't really? care either no I don't care about them they only live downstairs though, I know they? they do yeah but I don't care I don't want to know them big partiers <laughs> no oh. no they're not no no door slammers oh <laughs> even worse <laughs> yeah. yeah but uh, yeah 
I mean, I, I believe in the ideal of communism, mm -hmm. you know, from each according to its capacity, uh, to each according to their need. That is the proper way to live, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that's a lot. Yeah. Dave, um, we're going to wrap it up here. So we always ask the guests uh, when we're finished, any advice or what's the best piece of advice that's been passed on to yourself? Well, I don't know. I mean, I hesitate to give advice uh, because I think it's rather a presumption uh, to, to, to give advice. Um, but uh, the one thing I remember my, my grandmother when I was very small and we were reading uh, A Tale of Two Cities and she told me about noblesse oblige. And she said, the thing is, think about this, what it means in simple terms is if you have something, whether it's a material possession or something like that, and you have more than you need, it's your obligation to share it with other people. And I think that's a good principle. Absolutely. Yeah. To live yeah. by. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And once you switch the camera off, I'll tell you <laughs> a little bit more about that. <laughs> well, the camera actually has gone off. Oh, it's gone off. Yeah. All right, but then I'll tell you. Uh, my, my niece has found a house just around the corner from her mother, and she needed money. So I gave her 60 grand. Right. And then one of my colleagues, his marriage is in trouble, so I had to give him some money. And then one of my neighbours borrowed money from gangsters. And they said to him that if he didn't pay up, he'd be in the canal. Yeah, yeah. So I had to give him another 50 grand. So I cleaned out. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't have faced it if I'd, Don't if my niece hadn't got the house mm -hmm. or if my friend uh, had been found. Mm. In the canal, yeah. you know. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll, I think we'll wrap it up. Yeah. yeah. David, thanks a million for being a guest on the podcast. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoy your in conversation with. Experience. I did very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um. Yeah, and we'll let you know when it goes up for your <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to listen back to it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm not sure I'll be able to find it. Oh, yeah. we'll, we'll send it. To yeah, you. We'll, we'll send. Oh, it. I see. Well, then I listen to we'll it. Send yes. Link, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, I've, I don't know how, because he doesn't computer. Because I have, well, well Miriam could. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but I, I have two. I want to meet this Mern. Oh, she's wonderful. Mern oh. is across the road, but she's actually in Luxembourg now. Her husband oh. is made a judge of the European Court. But Miriam is my secretary, and she oh. is absolutely wonderful. Well, no, I want to meet Mern. Mern? Yes. My barrister, yes. Yes, she sounds amazing. Oh, she is wonderful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The next we'll, we'll, add her to, we'll add her to her list. I tell you, she would be a wonderful interview subject. Well, and she was my barrister, and she did all the work. Well, there you go. And she 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 did the cross examination. She did all the research. She did the cross examination. She was absolutely fantastic. Right. Absolutely fantastic. Well, it sounds like you're you're in a. And she's very funny. She's a Kerry woman. Oh, yes. Cute out the door, it said. And a great Irish. Speaker. Her mother was a native speaker, and yeah, she's she's absolutely wonderful. You speak a bit of Irish yourself. On Gaelic, a few of them. August bless all the dealish brothers tunica gum. And Hebrew. Can I share any of your little bit? Exact Ivrit about exact. He hated it. Yeah, like no, my Hebrew is fairly rusty, <laughs> but I I can speak it a bit. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. I, I just would struggle with English, so yeah. I'll leave it there. <laughs> um, and on that note, uh, this has been In Conversation with David Norris. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Do you know what I said about masturbation? That's very funny, because uh, I did an interview with, with Hot Press magazine years ago, um, 
the Mad Hatter's box, it was called, it was a little column. You know, people gave absurd, well, they asked absurd questions, I thought. So they said, um, what's your ambition? I said, to marry the Pope, um, have 2.5 children, and divorce them on the grounds of cruelty. Um, how do you relax? Oh, I said, I'm just like everybody else, masturbating to the tune of the skaters' waltz played on a xylophone. <laughs> Um, did they print it? They did! <laughs> and I was rather surprised that didn't come out during the presidential election. 